I'm David Woods-Hale, Director of Marketing and Communications at Amber, and you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. According to the Institute for the Future, as many as 85% of the jobs that will exist in 2030 haven't even been invented yet. So how do we prepare for these jobs when we don't even know what they are? To help me find out, today I'm joined by Michelle Weiss, author of Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet. And over the next half hour, we're going to investigate how we can successfully build a workforce which is capable of thriving in these future jobs. Well, hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today for the podcast. I thought it might be interesting if we just kick off the interview with you, perhaps telling us a little bit about yourself and and your career. Sure. Uh, My name is Michelle Weiss, and I am a senior advisor at Imaginable Futures, which is a venture of the Omidyar Group. And I wrote a book called Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet. And I've had just sort of a the the book is really sort of a culmination of trying to understand and articulate the different kinds of opportunities that exist to build a better functioning learning ecosystem for all of us as job seekers. And it kind of comes from my experience working in almost every stakeholder position of this ecosystem that that contains, you know, higher education and everything to and through the workforce. Um, I've kind of just had this uh, privilege of, of getting to work within academia, within think tanks, within startups, and um, within huge online universities, with funders policymakers. And so trying to kind of pull all those insights together into, into one source. Thank you. I mean, I think it's, it's more than fair to say that it's a fascinating topic. And I think that preparing for jobs that don't even exist yet is, is a massive challenge. Um, I'd be interested to find out from you really why you decided to write the book. And if you want to, to share a little bit about the, the sort of writing journey as, as you found it. One of the things I just sort of noticed early on in my career was when I would go to different conferences with higher education institutions or employers or workforce um, and training uh, providers is there would be a lot of excitement around the concept of lifelong learning. And I think I would see everyone sort of uh, nod their heads whenever someone would bring up the concept that we all need to become lifelong learners. And then that's where I would see the conversation end. We wouldn't actually do anything with it. I wasn't seeing any of the investment theses change in philanthropists or education reformers or venture capitalists investing in this space. And part of me was just starting to wonder how in the world are we going to navigate an uncertain world of work where we are going to have to, you know, make it through more job changes than we ever anticipated, but I'm not seeing any of the infrastructure or the architecture or the systems being built to facilitate more seamless on and off ramps in and out of learning and work. And so that was really the impulse for writing the book is to say, okay, this, this concept of lifelong learning is not new. It is decades old, but it, it has been very slow to catch fire. I haven't seen that. How do we spur people toward action? And for me, the most helpful mental model in all of this was hearing different kinds of experts on aging and longevity and futurists talk about 
a longer life and a potentially longer work life. And this idea that, you know, we are extending our lifespans for, you know, every decade we're adding years onto our lifespans. And so what does that imply for our work lives? And we're already seeing people stay in the labor market for far longer than they had had anticipated. So, you know, just the concept of, you know, a 100 year life or a 150 year life, suddenly it makes our, it just makes our systems look deeply inadequate, right? Because if we get a college degree, some sort of post-secondary degree, it seems unlikely that that two, four or six years of extra learning is really going to last us, you know, a 60, 80 or a hundred year work life. So that's where, um, that's where the concept began is to say, let's, instead of talking and, you know, being, being sort of paralyzed by inertia about lifelong learning, if we kind of flip this model on its head and think about long life learning, what is this going to mean? Like, how does this actually change our behavior? And what is it that we actually need to build? So what I love about this idea is that there used to be this fear in the marketplace that, you know, there was AI is going to take our jobs away and the same jobs that we used to having won't exist anymore. And I'm very encouraged by the fact that we don't know how many or what percentage of jobs will exist in 2030 that don't exist now. But there is a movement that's that's very much of the mindset that there will be loads of several new jobs that will come along that will create new opportunities. And for me, that's super exciting. Now, in terms of preparing for these jobs, when we don't know where they are, is that about you know continually taking micro-credentials or continuing to, to take courses all the time? Or is it more about having an agile mindset to be able to, to prepare oneself for these jobs? What would your advice be in terms of preparing? Yeah, I, I mean, certainly having an agile mindset is key and critical to success in the future. I think probably... Uh, one way to visualize this is to think about a capital T, right? We've all heard the concept of a T-shaped learner that people need to bring um, to bear a kind of broad-based conceptual understanding and, and knowledge base, but also some sort of verticality of technical or technological expertise. If if you just imagine stretching out that T, the sort of horizontal piece of this and imagining this kind of continuing along a 100 year work life, as an example, there's going to be a lot of those vertical pieces of different lengths of different, you know, density or width. Um, we have to kind of think about this sort of jagged, these different sorts of jagged edges that will that will extend uh, as we as we kind of build out into that future. And sometimes it's basically going to mean that we need to broaden our human skills. Um, there's a lot of different sorts of, you know, prognostications out there that will have to bring our human skills to bear, that we'll have to kind of leverage this advantage, this competitive advantage that we have as humans over the AI or the computers or the robots that we're coordinating with or complementing uh, the work of. But at other times, we also, it's not just that we can be generalists and bring our human skills to bear alone. Uh, it's sometimes going to be about understanding enough about artificial intelligence in order to make the right sorts of interventions or understanding data science enough to be able to acquire that next job. So it's both the human skills like communication, collaboration, teamwork, systems thinking, that kind of agile mindset that you're talking about 
about resilience plus you know, at certain times, just enough technical skills to be dangerous. Other times, real depth, uh, you know, the, the jobs that we may be pursuing may really require some extreme depth in, um, you know, in technology or in, in some sort of technical skills. So it's, it's this both and approach. Thank you. Now, considering COVID-19 in particular, obviously, it's a, a very unique time in history that we're, we're facing at the moment. And while COVID has brought numerous challenges for us as a global community. There is also a movement that's suggesting that it's created almost a full stop and an opportunity for us to reevaluate how we do business. And there is opportunities to, you know, when we return to the workplace and we start building up again following the pandemic, that we can do things a little bit better. So I'm really wondering what your thoughts are in terms of what your advice would be to to employers and leaders in terms of how they can deal with issues and biases that had historically made hiring practices unequal, or how can we consider the sustainability agenda in in moving forward in a, in a sort of new way of working or in a hybrid environment? Yeah, it, it's funny because when I first started writing the book and almost up through the of the final, the draft of the book, um, COVID hadn't yet occurred. Um, I had actually delivered the draft of my book to my editor two weeks right before uh, COVID really seized the US. And um, and what was interesting is the crux of the book was really this laser focus on people who were not thriving in the labor market. I think when we tend to focus on these questions of the future of work, it's really helpful to move away from all the statistics and the numbers about the number of jobs that are going to be automated or the, you know, the obsolescence of massive, you know, millions of jobs to, to computerization and instead sort of shift to the future of workers. And I was really focused on the 41 million people in the United States in particular who were already being left behind by the present of work, um, that who these were folks who maybe only had a high school degree who were not earning a living wage uh, through their work. And so when I actually had to revise the my book in light of COVID, what the pandemic really just sort of brought front and center was all of the deep inequity and uh, the lack of opportunity that existed for those 41 million Americans plus millions more. Because what we what the pandemic simply did was just reveal how inordinately stuck our systems were and that we couldn't really help large numbers of people move out of their, you know, jobs in retail and hospitality, you know, in these industries that were completely decimated and shift them into jobs that were actually open and in demand. And I think um, the, the real opportunity here is to take advantage of this really unique moment that that really brought the future to us and, and made it clear how, how much work we need to do and start pulling down some of those barriers that exist for millions of people, uh, not only in the US, but in the world who are kind of bumping up against these different barriers and obstacles um, that get in the way. And part of that is to kind of really start moving toward a skills-based hiring environment that allows folks to really prove that they can do the job, to prove what they know, instead of relying on these different sorts of blunt proxies for talent like degrees or credentials. I think we have seen over the last few decades 
that there's just sort of uh, a mismatch of, you know, the talent supply to the demand of opportunities by just sort of using uh, credentials or degrees as that sorting mechanism. And I think really, you know, if, if we can kind of think about uh, how do we enable opportunities for more people, a more diverse pipeline of, of talent to vie for these roles, to prove that they can do it, whether it's through apprenticeships or work-based learning opportunities or, you know, micro internships or, or sort of mini gigs in the workforce. There are different ways of facilitating these new interactions between hiring managers and job candidates. It's just that we have to move more deliberately in that direction. I think that's so compelling. I think that's so interesting to 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 look at the idea of recruitment based on skills and strengths as opposed to credentials. I think that that's a, a really fascinating um, argument. With that in mind, and also earlier in the interview, we spoke a little bit about higher education and you know how they're looking at courses as you know set periods of time, and we need to consider lifelong learning. At Amber, we're passionate about lifelong learning. We think very much about it and how you know one should be considering their next steps throughout their careers and looking to constantly upskill themselves. We've looked at this from a from a number of angles and even as far as suggesting that perhaps the MBA is something that should expire after a set amount of time with people needing to renew it to keep up to date with trends in the market. I'd be interested to find out from you what you think about your views in the future of business schools and perhaps MBA programs in terms of how they are equipping people to have a, a long life learning career and and really what you think needs to change in this arena? Yeah, it's it's a question um, that has a lot of significance for me uh, just because I, I had the, the real privilege of, of getting to work closely with Clayton Christensen, who was uh, the godfather of the theories of disruptive innovation. And one of his deep fears was for the future of business schools, because he could already see on the horizon uh, that, you know, at the time, this was, you know, even, even a few decades ago, Purdue Farms, which is a chicken, uh, you know, chicken production farm, um, they were even creating their own sort of internal university or Motorola was creating their own internal university because I think a lot of these major company companies were realizing that it didn't, the, the, the sort of old model of sending their people to business school wasn't yielding necessarily the results that they needed in, in-house. Um, and so he, he worried deeply about the future of these different sorts of MBA and doctoral programs in business. What is happening in business schools is not, you know, unlike what is happening even at lower levels when we look at our post-secondary institutions where we tend to, we tend to teach by discipline or, you know, academic silos. And the, the thing we need to really keep front and center is how do we build and cultivate the best problem solvers in the, for the future? Right. And I think that has to be something we keep as sort of a shared agenda. And maybe with that in mind, these sorts of artificial silos of how we how we create problems to solve for our learners will will break down because whatever we pursue, whether it's an MBA or, uh, you know, a degree in biology or anthropology, none of these problems exist in a vacuum where you're solving a problem as a historical 
problem or a mathematical issue or an anthropological issue. The the crossing of silos and boundaries exists in any kind of problem we encounter in our work today. We We just don't think in those ways. And it's the same with business skills. I mean, if you if you just sort of take a look at the kinds of opportunities that exist today, not only do we need sort of those traditional negotiation skills or or whatever the, the kinds of um, courses we provide in a business school are, or just traditional accounting or financial skills, it is about business transformation skills and how do we enable the future leaders of our companies and organizations to have the ability to manage change? Because we do know with great certainty, even if we can't necessarily articulate what the jobs of the future are, we do know with great certainty that that world is deeply uncertain and volatile, right? And, and, And so how do we prepare leaders to actually lead organizations in the midst of all that volatility? And it requires real kind of organizational change management, these different sorts of transformation skills. And we don't deliberately build those into our into our curricula. Um, How do we also, you know, we, we also, it's, it's fascinating, at least in the U S most of our business schools don't teach sales. Um, And, and these, these different ways of thinking about business development. Um, Meanwhile, you know, the jobs of the future will always entail some sort of form of sales. So how do we, how do we stay tuned and aligned with the, with the demands of the labor market? But I think core to all of this is how do we ensure that, that, you know, we are infusing the curricula with real world problems to solve um, and, and get folks in, in that mentality of, of building that kind of mindset of, um, of agility, of resilience, of being able to exercise judgment in the most ambiguous of circumstances. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Thank you for that. And then it, it's interesting that you you touched a little bit on negotiation, um, because I think while it is completely fair to say that we have no idea what jobs of the future are going to look like, I think it's fair to say that they'll definitely be much more intertwined or automated linked to technology than what they are at the moment, if that's possible, which I believe it is. <laughs> How important do you think that social and emotional intelligence is going to be? Because I do feel that as we sort of get more into technology and more concerned about data, AI, analytics, um, a lot of the human aspects of business are being lost. Do you think that that's something that we need to think a lot more about going forward? A hundred percent. I think it's, it's both of these lines of inquiry at once. I think we do need to have a really strong understanding of what I, what AI can do and the potential harm that it can wreak and also the, the real kind of upside of leveraging this kind of machine learning for, for different kinds of problems we need to solve. At the same time, in order to do that well, it requires a level of judgment and leveraging an understanding of ethics and thinking about the first and second and third order effects of what what is happening here. Um, I think one of the most illuminating comments I had from one of the folks I interviewed for the book was um, this uh, product manager over at Apple who said, 
whenever we are thinking as a team about what we are building, we have to think about the volume impact repercussions of what we're building. Because unlike other sorts of innovations, anything that Apple builds or one of the you know big tech companies builds is not just being exposed to hundreds of people at once, but all of a sudden millions and millions and millions of people are, are, are taking advantage of that tool in an instant. And what does that mean? So that we're not always reacting to the problems that we create from, uh, you know, that, that leverage, uh, these different sorts of machine learning or deep learning techniques, but anticipating all the ways in which these things can go wrong. It's really, really important that base of understanding that we bring to the table is this, this very important mixture of human and technical skills. Fantastic. Something else that I really loved about your writing is that you, you say that or you call for a new learning ecosystem, which you describe as being navigatable, supportive, targeted, integrated, and transparent. And I absolutely love that line of thinking. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? When we want to build a better future and kind of think about um, and and how we how we might behave differently for the future. The the simple idea is that instead of thinking about multiple systems working in parallel, we need to think about an ecosystem approach. And what I mean by this is um, we 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 have to kind of move out of this this way of thinking about you know K through twelve education over here or post secondary education over in another silo and workforce education in another silo um, and instead kind of think about how do we bring all the different stakeholders that exist, whether they're funders or employers or um, job seekers or educators, how do we get them to sort of align towards a shared agenda? And this came out of the qualitative research that we did with folks who, as I mentioned before, who were part of that 41 million American population who we're not thriving in the labor market. And we were trying to understand what barriers and obstacles are the things that really prevent mobility and, and movement and internal mobility, um, you know, or advancement and the coalescing of ideas really kind of, we, we just kept kind of hearing the same issues emerge around the constraints and the inability to access the right career navigation, the right sorts of wraparound support services, the right sorts of targeted educational pathways that weren't always a two or a four-year degree or a one-year certificate, the ways to access on the job embedded, you know, in the flow of work, learning opportunities that were helping them build new skills and those kinds of skills-based hiring practices that would make for fairer and more transparent hiring. So it really kind of were these five principles that, that, that emerged. And, um, that's, that's kind of what I mean by a new learning ecosystem has to be fundamentally more navigable, supportive, targeted, integrated, and, and transparent. Um, I think all of us can think of different sorts of solutions or interesting sorts of innovators and organizations that work on things like career navigation or, you know, targeted more precise educational opportunities like boot camps or on ramps 
or different kinds of wraparound support services groups where, you know, they're, they're providing the kinds of access to transportation or childcare services or financial support services um, for adult, for, for all of us as learners. The thing that we're missing though, is for all of this to be just so much more easily understandable and easily navigable for any person out there. So that the ultimate goal of all of this is that if we're to sort of pull aside anyone we bump into and just ask them, how are you going to navigate your next job change? They would understand who to call, where to go, what education provider is legitimate and something worth pursuing, which kinds of employers are actually uh, engaging in these more transparent hiring practices. But when we think about what we have today, none of that is stitched together or knit together in a way that is easily comprehensible. And that's the that's the idea here is that it's not just about one solution that solves for one or two or three principles of this new learning ecosystem, but instead that we bring together lots of different organizations and resources and existing and new solutions to make this all center around the job seeker so that the job seeker knows, you know, exactly where to turn and how to navigate their next job change. Thanks, Michelle. I've got one more question and I'm afraid it is the million dollar question. So brace yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Whose role is it to ensure that the workforce is equipped with the right skills for the future? So to put it into a bit of context, is it up to the individual? Is it up to educational institutions or business schools in our case, governments or indeed organizations themselves? What do you think? Yes, it it is the million dollar question. And it and the answer is it's it's on all of us. And that that's really the sort of driving um motivation behind this idea of an ecosystem-based approach. I think in many cases there's a sort of a blame game going on where employers blame higher ed for not producing, you know, uh, the job candidates they need or higher ed blames employers for disinvesting in the education of new workers or the individuals are often bearing the brunt of all of this, having to navigate this completely on their own, especially as they are more mature in their work lives and trying to navigate um, the terrain uh, in front of them. But it it is, it's not sufficient for us to kind of continue in this manner where truly the bulk of, of reskilling and upskilling, all of that onus is kind of just sort of Uh, pushed on to all of us as individuals. Somehow we need to figure out the skills gaps that we have and where to turn to, uh, to actually get the right precise education to fill those gaps. And also we're just kind of praying and hoping that a future employer will know how to make sense of this new learning. Um, None of that is sufficient for the future. It really does mean that employers start to really rethink the way they think about on-the-job training and think about how they look at their incumbent workforce and reshape them into the workers that they need for the future, rather than always kind of recruiting externally and buying talent. They really need to focus on building talent internally and understanding the kinds of talent gold that they're sitting on. Higher ed institutions need to stop kind of perseverating on this concept of 
you know, some sort of dividing line between a liberal arts education and more applied um, career technical education, that ship has sailed in terms of, you know, the, that the need is clear that our learners need to have, yes, these kinds of liberal arts competencies and human skills, but they also need to learn how to apply it in real world settings. So how do we, how do we really build in more inquiry-based models or problem-based learning into our curricula? And our learners just also need to understand better, you know, who is out there, who they can trust. They need different kinds of ways of, of, of sorting through these these different options out there. And that's where, you know, venture capital, innovators, social entrepreneurs really have a role to play in helping uh, all of us kind of, you know, make sense of, of this, this burgeoning ecosystem, but it's, it's not one or the other. It's not about blowing up um, something that exists today. It's about really kind of shifting the orientation selfishly around all of us as people and as, as job seekers, because as we think about a longer work life and 20 or 30 job changes that we might have to anticipate for the future, we're all going to bump into the same exhorts, same sorts of challenges that people who are really struggling today are bumping into. So it's this idea of we're all kind of stuck in this web of mutuality. This is a term that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came up with, but it's this idea of if we kind of cut into the curb for the people who are struggling the most, we open up opportunities for everyone, right? Like when you actually, it's this concept of curb cut effects. When you focus in on the people who really have the most constraints today, that means that all of us are going to be able to take advantage of the new ecosystem that we're building. And so my answer is it's all of us. <laughs> yeah, that's great food for thought. And indeed, it's been a, a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me and also for a really insightful discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks once again to Michelle for taking the time to speak to me today. As I mentioned at the start of the interview, Michelle's book, Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet, is available through all good retailers. And if you're interested to find out more content on lifelong learning, you can achieve that through the Amber website, which is www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition.